I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and I'm here in person with Andy Johnson. Yeah, rare, rare time in person recording. It only happens a couple times a year. It's uh, nice to be out here in San Francisco on the West Coast with you, Garrett. We are doing a mailbag podcast today. We put out a call on Twitter and on Instagram for questions for a podcast where we answer those questions, and we got a bunch of them. We're definitely not going to cover all of them. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for sending in your questions, if you did that. We're sorry we didn't get to them all. Always try to advance. get to as many as possible. But Absolutely. Yeah, this will be, be fun. This will be a little bit different and uh, change of pace. And then we'll be back to interviews and uh, different things next week. Yeah. We thought it was a good time to do a mailbag podcast because there have been a lot of different interesting things happening in the golf world recently, whether it's golf course architecture whether it's the premier golf league saudi golf league stuff whether it's the players championship which was a really compelling tournament um and so there are just a bunch of different subjects that we felt like we could tackle and so we thought why not sort of sample from them i thought we'd start with some players championship discussion players championship wrapped up on monday of this week and we also have some questions on the pga tour more generally and some questions on golf course architecture as usual so those are coming up but thought we would uh, talk about the players first. So first question for the players from Jeffrey Wright on Twitter. He says, watching guys hit shots on Saturday was delightful, but it felt like a one-off because of the wins. Is there anything setup-wise the tour could do to replicate the viewing experience and force guys to hit more types of shots? Or is it hopeless because of the TPC network? I don't think it's the TPC network that makes it hopeless. It's it's more just the kind of general approach <laughs> to set up that the PGA Tour has. But it's a good question. Like, how do we get that? More they often? could they could have uh, Bellata and Persimmon tournaments. That that would get that. <laughs> that would be that'd be an easy easy fix. But given that that's not probably happening, I think staging tournaments in extreme wind, extremely windy locations. Maybe you find. A place that's really windy. Find a title sponsor. The tour is good at finding title sponsors, and say, "Hey, we want to we want to create this this event." Now, the the issue there is that players probably wouldn't show up. You know, yeah. that's like always the issue. You know, you think about Trinity Forest, and I, there's a little bit more than just the golf course. You know, for from a spectator standpoint, it wasn't great. Um, because of, you know, it wasn't where it used to be at the, I think it was the four seasons, um, course, but you know, the spectators, it, it, there wasn't a lot of shade and stuff, but you go to, go to, uh, Trinity forest, which is a golf course that's different. It's windy, you know, it's on top of a landfill in Texas and it's windy and it's got these really cool greens and micro contours in the fairways. And of course the players just don't show up. So that's the issue. I think the issue is more so on the players and and then obviously the equipment. So yeah. 
Yeah, unless we get extreme winds and, um, you know, the open really hasn't had them uh, except for some at Portrush. That that's kind of what you're you're left to. Right. You just yeah. you just sort of looking for wind is is what requires shot making, really. Wind was the, the big thing. Other factors can definitely enhance shot making. I mean, good architecture, firmness, all the things that we bang on about. I mean, these these are factors as well. But wind, I think, as we saw this past weekend, is the single biggest factor, which makes you want to see more tournaments on Lynx courses, obviously, on the, on the European Tour. You wish there was a bigger Lynx swing, a Lynx swing that wasn't occupied with courses that aren't really Lynx courses. You know, why is the Irish you, Open being held are you where it's being held? Mount Juliet and, uh, you know. I, I got some guff <laughs> from some uh, people who may have had business connections to Mount Juliet last time I, I uh, so maybe I should stay away from that. But yeah, I mean, Lynx season on the European tour seems like a slam dunk, right? But it's not. And the reason it's not is, as you said earlier, the players. There was a great interview that Shane Bacon did with Keith Pelly, the, um, the commissioner of the European tour. I don't know if that's his actual title. He might, he might go by CEO. But uh, there's a great interview that that Shane did with him on golf today on, on the show that he and Damon Hack do on Golf Channel, where Shane actually asked him, why isn't there a link season on the European tour? What, what, what about a bigger, longer, more, you know, you know, uh, branded kind of out there link season? And Keith Pelly had a funny reaction where he said, you know, nobody's ever asked me this question before. And it's like, well, good job, Shane, for finally asking this question. Um, but basically what Pelly said is that a few years ago, we brought the idea of a proper link season to the players. And they said no, because it would just be too hard for them to play three or four consecutive events on links courses and then go back to the ordinary golf that we get on the PGA Tour and the European Tour which is these you know, soft setups, target golf, uh, a, a lot of the things that, that Lynx golf works against and that make it so delightful. And so that is a good representation right there of how hard it is to get the players to buy into playing a different kind of golf. The players think that hurts, it hurts their game. Well, I think there is some, some case to that. I think you know when you play in heavy winds regularly, you can get into some bad habits. And there are aspects of that statement that reign true with regards to the, you know, the players and, and, and their attitudes towards uh, swing changes. But at the same time, they also would develop a lot more shot making and that could help them in situations such as the players on yeah. Saturday. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think there, it's a double-edged sword, but it's so hard to get players to buy into anything that's different, and it it makes sense. You know, they've they've gotten to a point where they're making millions of dollars playing golf a certain way, and any sort of change that could rock the boat. Who knows? Maybe you're not a good links player, but you're a really good target golf player, and the idea of a links swing. You know, you start to think, well, what what if people love this? And what if it becomes bigger than this? What if it becomes more than a swing? And all of a sudden you're you start these are you know, this is I always use this example when you talk about course changes, but you know, if you say to a sales rep, We're we're changing your commission structure, 
the immediate response is always negative. Mm-hmm. You c- it could be the best deal in the world for them. Any sort of change is a bad thing in their minds because that you're changing the way I've compensated. You're changing. My job is changing. I've got, I've got this, the way that things are, I have it figured out. I'm humming along. I'm doing good. If you change that, then that's not good. So you think about it as it, and this is where golf struggles so much, I think, because in other sports, you have that ownership proxy that, that is in it for the fans because they know the more popular their sport is, the more revenue that their stadiums and their their teams are worth, the yeah. more money their their franchise is worth, you know, and the players, you know, if if everything was equal, like I don't think NBA players would do press conferences every night, you know, but they do them every night in the playoffs because, hey, like the that's what the league mandates, and that's the issue with the PGA Tour ha- being run effectively by the players. And that's been reiterated numerous times during this this uh, somewhat tumultuous times on the PGA Tour is, hey, Jay Monahan, I work for you guys. It's already your tour. Yeah, it is already your tour. And so this is a perfect example. Like, we, you don't like those courses? We don't go to those courses. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's, that's the way it is. And that's why we don't get more days like we had at the stadium course on Saturday, which, which was, as Jeffrey Wright said, delightful. All right, on to the next question. Matt Mullen on Twitter. Any insight into why we didn't get every shot live this week in the U.S.? Every shot live is the the much vaunted PGA Tour platform that showed you every shot at the Players' Championship. It debuted, I believe, last year, yeah. maybe the year before. I'm not sure. Last year. but or, or, Well, I think it was the year before, but who can remember? Mysteriously unavailable this year to U.S. customers. It sounds like people in Canada, at least, maybe in other countries as well, golf got TV. this. Yeah, Golf TV had it. Anybody okay. that uses Golf TV. So it exists. Yeah. The infrastructure for whatever it is is still there. And... Somebody, Brendan on the shotgun start was saying that it was tied to ESPN plus it, it has something to do with the new rights deal. Okay. So, so just another example of money and, and fans losing out. So that's the answer to the question. <laughs> Any insight into why we didn't get every shot live money, new media rights deal. This and, is, this is a PGA, realignment the of PGA, things. The PGA tour doing what they do best, giving the middle finger to fans. <laughs> yeah. Cause this was an asset to fans. Like this was a cool thing. It it's incredible. a cool thing at the masters every year where you can go through somebody's round and see every shot. I did an article last year after the masters on the 13th hole at Augusta. And guess what I could do? I could go back and watch every single drive in the tournament on the 13th hole and so like that was good for me as a golf writer. But I think it's also for, for golf nerds. If you're really interested in how players are playing the third hole at Augusta or in every shot live, if you're really curious how they handle the fourth hole, it's a fascinating, you know, shortish par four. This this platform could allow you to dig into those details. That's gone. Um, and so it's a bummer. And instead we got we got gold boy. I mean, I'm not going to complain about getting Gold Boy's <laughs> replacement because I, I really, it really made my week. It was, uh, you know, even even my wife who doesn't care about golf at all found Gold Boy to be quite humorous. And uh, I will say this: I, I think that that golf, um, I and this is inside baseball kind of thing. Um, I, you know, there's two other sports that I listen to podcasts to regularly: it's the NFL and the NBA. 
and I listen to the podcasters of the NBA and the NFL, and they talk about, oh, I watched the all 22 of this game in the NFL, and then it's like, oh, I was watching League Pass, the the you know, effectively going back and watching a game from last night. And I always think like, God, you know how nice it would be to like, you know, Rick, Ricky's been in a slump. Like, let's watch. Let's see. Like, we can look at stats, but like, I'd love to just watch every shot and see, oh, this is this is why it's not working, you know, but I don't get afforded that luxury for my own job. And I think for fans, fans, it costs fans like, you know, NBA has their league pass. MLB has whatever they call it. Um, you know, NFL has their Sunday ticket and you every sport has the ability for you to watch everything. And I know that this is a big undertaking for the tour. And there's a small it's a much smaller subset of fans that could watch it, want it. But the idea of just getting rid of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, after I mean, you made such a big deal in your biggest market is just it's just crazy. What what's the innovation for then? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about what happens in the NBA, the NFL, in baseball. Baseball's got its own issues right now, but with the gambling element in those sports and how that attracts fans and obsessed fans, right? And maybe it's not a great influence. Like the the you know ethical implications of all this, or I think we're going to work those out over the the next number of years. But Right now, golf is in a position where it's attracting a lot of people who are interested in fantasy golf. And guess what those what what that kind of person likes to do when they're really trying to get an edge? When, when, Dig into the details, like get nerdy about it. Uh, and you also when you're betting, you like to watch what's going on yeah. and understand, uh, you know, people instead just watch Shot Tracker. Like, yeah. you know, if if I'm if I'm betting on golf, I'm going to be on Shot Tracker like when I I have a friend who plays on the Corn Ferry Tour. You know what I do like a lot of? I watch the worst shot tracker in the world. Yeah. Because I'm I'm trying to like keep keep up to date with what's going on and see, you know, see where and it, it you know, every shot live has so much potential. It doesn't have to be live either. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, it just has to be it just has to exist. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just want to be able yeah. to see shots. Yeah. You know, and I, I think like that's the thing is even if you get if you could get to like where you we got nine holes, it would be a huge improvement. Like this, these are the places that needs to be improved leaps and bounds. And I wonder, like, you know, I don't know. I'm not a production person um, outside of very small scale productions with the Friday. <laughs> um, <laughs> extremely small, like the smallest of small scale productions. But, but you mean the, it's not like a golf telecast, <laughs> but. Like, you know, $40 million in PIP money that just popped up out of thin air. Yeah. Like, how far would $40 million get us with, with terms of getting, like, how many how many tournaments could we do every shot live with, with $40 million? Yeah. It probably wouldn't be one, I, I would guess. I, I would guess that it'd be probably more like 10. Mm -hmm. And you start to think about that. It's like, oh, like, if I could get every shot live for... The FedEx Cup playoffs, the WGCs, the players, Riviera. All of a sudden, that's like, wow. You know, you just improve the product immensely for fans. And if you're going to have a more popular sport, you know what that does? That drives more revenue to the sport. And then your players make more money. So that could be a, a more holistic, sustainable mo mo model to pay your top players more is simply 
invest in the fan experience so more people like the sport. Why is it that these incentives, which seems so obvious in other sports, the more popular our league is, the better everybody is going to do. Why does that logic not apply to the, what the PGA Tour does? Because it seems like at every turn, the PGA Tour is not operating according to that seemingly obvious logic that if you get more fans and give them a good experience, then everybody's going to make more money and be happier on your tour. Why, why is it that that incentive just doesn't seem to work? The players. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right. Next question. Christopher Motes uh, on Instagram asks, if, if Sawgrass was a band, what would it be? That's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, it's a it's something that has it has some bite to it. It's not like a mellow jam band in any any uh, way. Like a little you know, bit it's, aggro. It's really in your face. Like <laughs> I think in a way, like I I I've I think in a way it could be like A C D C. That's where, a good. That's a good one. Where it, it, haven't, it like, haven't you compared Mike Strantz to yeah, ACDC? Yeah, I, I, like Tobacco Road. Yeah, it, it, that's yeah. like a, the one thing I think about is like where like if you're playing it, it's really cool, but then it keeps hitting you in the face, <laughs> and you're just like, I, I don't know if I really want to keep doing this. Well, when you well, look, you know what. I'll, I'll I'll say one of my favorite bands, actually, Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> I, th- I thought you would say that, actually. It's the <laughs> first band that came to mind for me, too. Like, a little bit mainstream, mm-hmm. you know? Like, not every song is brilliant, but a really solid band that was very influential. Yeah. yeah. And and it's got, like, it's got some edge to it, right? Yeah. Like, they have, like, especially the early Red Hot Chili Peppers, just like early saw- Sawgrass. They had some real edge. <laughs> That's but, true, and they got more. They got more. Yeah, yeah, refined uh-huh. as they went along for sure. Yeah, yeah and, Red Hot Chili Peppers got more pop. Yeah. Oh, totally. They used to be more funk rock. Yeah, more punk rock, really. You think so? Yeah, they had like yes. they were like punk punk funk. Okay. In a way. Yeah. Well, you know about uh, more about the Chili Peppers than I do, but uh, I think that is uh, that's a really solid comp. I, I couldn't really come up with many bands that i'd compare tpc sawgrass to is as interesting a question as it is nickelback it, it would have to be no that's just reese jones um <laughs> uh tpc <laughs> um, <laughs> sawgrass would have to be i feel like it would be a, a band that was really good and and kind of pushed the art forward a bit did something kind of new but spawned a lot of imitators that weren't nearly as good. And I can't think of a band that's like that, though I know that one is out there. There has to be, there has to be a band that fits that description. Creed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. All right, more general questions about the PGA Tour. Um, I'm going to pair up a couple of questions from uh, Antifaldo or Antifa Oldo however you want to pronounce it. And then uh, one of my favorite usernames on Twitter, Burrito Bros Shit. So Antifaldo asks, if Top Tracer is just a line, this is referring to a famous Andy take that that Shot Tracer that you see on uh, Golf Telecast tracing the flight of the ball is is just a line and it's it's not actually accurate or meaningful or whatever. We can have you describe that take more. 
Uh, Antifado says, how do we improve it? What other graphics should be added to the telecast that would provide additional value? More Skycam? More wind visualization graphics? And then uh, BBS, as I'll call him, asks, what would be the best way to change the broadcast to accurately t- depict the topography of golf courses? Which I think is a really good yeah. uh, way to almost answer Antifaldo's question, which is you don't need more graphics necessarily. You just maybe need better shots of the golfers and the course. Yeah, I mean, some of the best shots you always see are from the guy that's the camera guys that work their asses off and are running to get behind people, and then they they show the scale properly of of a golf hole. And the ones who uh, have the have the good cameras, yeah, you know, the guy, the ones who have the really detailed cameras that can that can focus and blur the background, and that can that can you know get some, I don't know the proper terminology here, but but can uh, use a longer focal length, I guess is the term, where you're more zoomed in so that you can actually see what what's in the background come closer to you. And I think that's really key in photographing golf courses. You need that long lens in order to bring the background closer and actually show what is there. I think that's the way to show topography better. And we're occasionally seeing some of these moves from CBS recently. Yeah. And I that, think that's CBS, part of what they're doing well. Their CBS is it, their golf telecast gotten a lot better. Um, I think the other thing, just setting up the cameras and in, into the right spots, understanding what the hole is doing, and and getting your camera towers in the right spots and the right height. Mm-hmm. Every camera tower is seemingly the same um, height, and there are golf photographers that I have a running joke with that have like a, a you know their drone on on auto that said Siri. You know, they got Siri on the drone, fly up to 50 meters. <laughs> fly behind and, the green. Yeah, behind the green. <laughs> and it's the same shot every time. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happens with golf telecasts. It makes it's, every course look the same. Yes. The way that it's shot makes all the courses look the same. Yeah, because it, it flattens everything from a, from too high of an angle. So that's one big thing. In terms of shot tracer. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with this take <laughs> at all. I, I mean, it's it's a goofy. It's it's you're not totally serious. About no, this. I'm not totally serious about the shot tracer. <laughs> I just think that a little bit too much is is made of it. I think yeah. that like too much stock is put into the shot tracer because it's wrong a lot of times. Like they are there are malfunctions, which might sort of play into the controversy with Daniel Berger this past yeah. weekend, yeah. where uh, Victor Hovland and Joel Damon in the final round on the 16th hole uh, after Daniel Berger hit it into the pond. They were kind of asking him where that drop should be. They thought he was a little bit too far forward, that the ball crossed uh, farther back than Berger was saying. And then, of course, the shot tracer shot gets posted on social media sites and everybody uses the shot tracer line as absolute gospel. This is definitely where exactly where the ball flew and we can see it unmistakably crossing the hazard at this particular point. And I was just like, okay, even if that, line is right on where the ball is and it might be the angle of where you're shooting might kind of affect the way the curve is going like i don't know where that ball crossed the hazard i really don't but i don't think that going to the shot tracer line as the Listen, confirming evidence is the way to go i want to get back to shot tracer all right let's go product let's not here. let's not <laughs> let's not get into the nitty-gritty here but you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the, when the NHL had that that blur for the hockey puck. You know, with the like, it was like a shooting comet. I, I 
I don't think I've ever watched hockey on television. Oh, that's sad. It's a it's a perfect example of a I don't know if people will agree with this. Great live sport. Amazing live sport. I used to go to hockey games in college. Playoff hockey is incredible. I I don't I haven't watched I don't get it on television because I can't see the puck. Well, so this was a big problem with with hockey was that you couldn't see the puck. So they made this is just it's just like Shot Tracer. It was a puck thing. It was like I forgot what they called it, but it was like it was like the puck was a shooting star okay. and it left like a trail. It was like a puck trail. And that was the first iteration of it. And then they went to like this thing. And then they I think they just like learned how to shadow, right? Now, like, I think it would look a lot better if it wasn't just a, a line, right? You know, the line can sometimes even obscure what you're looking at on the camera because it gets in the way. You, can, you might not be able to even see the pin, where the pin is, because the line is over the pin. Um, and I think you could just go with, like, a, a small highlight, you know? Yeah. Like, it, you could just throw, like, a very subtle little... Something something that's around the ball as yeah, opposed to showing. It doesn't have to be this big line. And then sometimes, like for the most part, you know, that's pretty boring. You know, it's just a straight line. Now these guys, but it, then but you could occasionally, occasionally you could put really the line cool. on it. So you think it should be used less? Wait, I think mo- it, most people would say it should be should used more. I think just make the ball visible. They just should make it. a bigger ball. Maybe this is an argument for a bigger ball. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just <laughs> I, here's the thing. I, I see. I think that the shot tracer has made golf telecasts a lot better. I think it's improved golf telecasts. I'm not really going to sure. disagree. Yeah. Okay. But 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 you just don't don't think well, it's I, the my take end is, all be all. My take has been that shot tracers overrated. I have to it's stick, just a line. It's I a, have to stick to it. <laughs> you're you're a, pr- a prisoner of your own takes at this yeah. point. All right. Uh, I'm dug in. <laughs> Out uh, at House Sacco asks, Brandel is constantly clamoring for narrow fairways and long rough to identify the best player. You can't roll back equipment or guarantee wind. Right, well, you can roll back equipment. I think maybe that House Sacco is asking us to, to operate from the premise that you might not be able to roll back equipment. Which course and setup do you two choose to identify the best men's and women's golfer called the TFE Championship? I'm, yeah, I think a lot of good courses exist on the PGA Tour already where this this can happen. But does anything come to mind for you? Like, I thought Shinnecock was pretty good. Yeah. There's there's been I, in Kiowa. Shinnecock, Shinnecock, yeah, Kiowa, Shinnecock, Kiowa. You're gonna get wind. Like yep. a non-windy day out there is windy. Yeah. And um, I think like so that's a big thing with Kiowa. I don't. I'm not crazy about a lot of the way the golf course is is presented, but the the conditions wind trumps all like i mean it was so wet that sawgrass and the wind made it so so yeah. fun can you imagine if it was firm so, yeah I and did, I, would I, have been, well that's what you get a shinnecock you get yeah. you get width you get wide fairways you get firm turf and you get wind all the time because it's like up high exposed on the on long island on an island out in, in the ocean yeah. so i mean shinnecock and here's the thing you know the shinnecock's Shinnecock was one of the first clubs that had women members and it would be one of the most delightful courses to watch a U.S. women's open. It has open green fronts. It has firm turf. It has wind. It would, you know, it allows for shots to bounce in. It'll really, 
it's you know women prefer playing Shinnecock to National um because National has a lot of carries into greens and trench bunkers and you know different things and and Shinnecock would be a marvelous marvelous US Women's Open course like that would be that's like probably near the very very top of a golf tournament that I would want to go see is is Shinnecock US Women's Open yeah absolutely that that would be that would be awesome Every year the PGA Tour goes to Riviera. Every year in different ways, that course is fantastic. There are certain certainly ways that uh, Riviera could be improved, but it gets a lot of lot of things right. It gets a lot of the important things right. And uh, you know, a telling thing that happened either last year or a couple a couple of years ago at Riviera is that when the wind kicked up, they halted the tournament for a while. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. This must have been last year. It was last year. And and that is just representative of, of kind of the problem, right? That Oh, there's, that, there's... that was way crazy. Yeah. I mean, did you see it? Remember the putt? The putts on the green, on the 10th green were that moving. were getting like blown into the bunker? They were moving because the, <laughs> because the greens were running too fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an epidemic across the country. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that is the issue is that. That course is and is great and could be greater. And if you didn't have to have the greens running so fast that they, they become almost unplayable when a fairly normal like Santa Ana wind kicks up, um, then it would be much better. And I, I think that would be ideal. And uh, I don't know, maybe you need to roll back for that to really work. But I don't think so. Not necessarily. Roll, a rollback would help pace the play at Riv. You know, they wouldn't have to wait for every, you know, they have to wait on 10, 11, um, They would still have 17. to wait on 10. With any feasible rollback, they'd still have to wait on 10, don't you think? I don't know. Ten, you knock 10% off everybody and all yeah. of a sudden. There would be know, some par fives that would be. Well, 10% of 300 is 270. Yeah. You know, if you knock we'll 10% off. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to see see the pace of play there like 15 years ago because that's that's what maybe a rollback could do would be to restore distances, approximate distances of about 15 years ago. It'd be nice if I think for, for classic golf courses, if, if 300 was a monumental big drive, yeah, you know, we're, right now we're trending towards 400, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> absurd. Totally. Cause what, what's the short par four if, if people can hit it 370, it used to be the marker of a massive drive oh my god he hit it over 300 when john daly averaged over 300 in i think it was the late 90s maybe the early 2000s that was an incredible achievement it was like breaking the sound barrier or something you know and now now that's yeah yeah the the mystique of that number has certainly gone down so yeah rollback is is definitely part of this equation but uh to answer the the question where where i saw something but um I think it was Crenshaw. I can't remember the graphic, but it was it was a what was in the bag during a big win, and it was from the seventies. And the player was using a fairway wood from the forties. <laughs> I mean, think about that now. Like, think about if a guy won in twenty twenty, and they're like, "What's in your bag?" And they're like, "I uh, was using an Orlamar Tri Metal three wood." <laughs> 
or older than that. Adam's tight lies. Yeah, right. Like, like a, a mid. Well, yeah, Orl- Orlamar would be mid nineties. A, a, yeah, co- so a cobra, be. a wood cobra baffler. You know, yeah. like it, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. What happened with like equipment like that? Like equipment didn't go out of style. Like it, you know, that was the other thing that. You know, the game was much more approachable because you didn't buy a club and have it be outdated 10 years later. I, that's the, that for me, that's the big thing uh, that happened in the early 2000s. I mean, many big things happened in the late 90s and early 2000s with equipment. I, all the things we've talked about, the Pro V1, the Titanium 460cc driver, et cetera, all those things that you've heard of uh, happened then. But another big thing that happened is that equipment retail cycles started to turn over so so quickly i mean like the ping i2 irons were on shelves in stores as ping's flagship iron for like 25 years maybe that's an exaggeration well, but they had for the ping thing decades yeah i mean and and you know if you bought one of those and if you bought uh ping i2s in 1982 and you had them still in 1997 nobody would be looking at your irons and thinking those are outdated. Hey, you know, this might be a perfect time to talk about a, uh, our, our, our sponsor, Club Champion. <laughs> Here, here's what I will say. This is a personal, a personal anecdote. I have been going to Club Champion forever um, I, since when these guys were building clubs in their garage because they're Chicagoans. And this is what I'll say and why I actually like truly love Club Champion is that I go, I go get fit, and I like never ever have club envy because I go get fit, they have all the shafts, they have all the heads, you get to test all of them, it's a really cool experience, and then I know I have the right club. And these clubs like hold up, like I remember years ago, I, I was, a company wanted to get me a driver uh, it was it was when I was playing a lot of mid-am golf and they had a mid-am program and they wanted to get me a driver and I went into Club Champion and literally the guy that's been fitting me forever was like, Andy, you'd be absolutely crazy to change clubs. Like, you might pick up two yards with this new driver, but you're hitting it like 10 yards more crooked. You, in, in in your best ones with the with your current driver, the, it's so tight, and it might it, your best ones get to where this one gets, and that's the stuff you get. And it's a way that I personally, like, I don't buy new clubs because I go get fit, and then I don't think about it for a while. And and that's the way I've created some stability in my golf bag as well. So I'm not really tinkering because I know that I have the right clubs. So. That's my uh, my club champion uh, story. Do you know what our promo code is offhand? I think it's just fried egg. Yeah, I think it's fried egg. You get twenty percent off your fitting. I'll, club- I'll correct this yeah. later if that's wrong. We go to go to clubchampiongolf.com and you can schedule a fitting. You'll get twenty percent off your fitting if with the purchase of a club. So now back to our discussion. All right, <laughs> why don't we move on to another question here? Uh, we're still in kind of general golf questions, PGA Tour. And uh, I like this one. This one was, I, I feel like uh, this, uh, that Ryan Bass here um, was throwing you a hanging curveball and, and uh, giving you a question that would be close to your heart. Uh, he asks, as it stands right now, can Trevor Immelman's team compete with USA with, uh, with the USA at Quail Hollow? I think they can. And then he did a uh, screenshot of the current 
President's Cup standings for the international team. And it's Cameron Smith, Hideki, Song JM, Louis Ustazen, Joaquin Neiman, Abe Anser. And then it kind of falls off a little bit. But, you know, Mackenzie Hughes, Adam Scott, Eric Van Royen, Mark Leishman, I mean, Corey Connors. There's some good players here. Yeah. Uh, Bassi Munoz. Uh, Mito Pereira might might emerge at, at some point. I, I haven't heard much about him. So a little background. I can't remember where. I, I, I did a bold prediction that over the next 20 years, the President's Cup would be more the more competitive team competition than the Ryder Cup. And I, I did this based off of like what I looked at depth of young talent. And I, I thought, you know, when you look at the amateur ranks and you look at um, the professional ranks, there, there are a lot more intriguing young players on, on the international side. And obviously the Europeans, they have two of the top five players that are you both the, young. the internationals. No, I'm saying the Europeans. Like oh, the, for Ryder Cup. Okay. Yeah. yeah you're talking about yeah. Hovland and Rom. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's tricky. But then when you get, you get to kind of like the, the depth of, of the young internationals where you have, you know, obviously Cam Smith's in his twenties. Walking Neiman. Yeah. Neiman and M. And then you get into some of these, the Japanese amateurs and you have obviously Hideki is still under 30, right? I'm not exactly sure. 29. And you just start to look, it it just seems like that, that competition in, in the way the game uh, in those areas is developing. And there are more and more young uh, South Korean players. There's more and more young Japanese players. And, and, you know, there, it just, so, yeah, I think they, they can be competitive. The question of what Asian countries produce as far as men's golfers go over the next couple of decades is going to be a big one for the international team because that's that's sort of the sleeping giant, I suppose, uh, as far as international team members go. Um, so we'll see. And, uh, you know, Hideki may have a huge impact here. What he's done over the past uh, uh, year it could be very big. All right, moving on to some golf course architecture questions. When should we wrap this up? How many more questions should we should well, we get to here? A few. We, we, gotta we, get to we got we, we got some time. We can't just talk about the PGA Tour, you know. All right. First one. Uh, I'm not sure how much we want to talk about this right now, but it's directly relevant to what we're doing right now. Uh, Johan Golf on Instagram asks, "What did you think of Lake Merced's renovation?" And also, how is Green Hills? We've obviously posted that we have been to these places. We went to Green Hills Country Club earlier today. And uh, we've also been out to, or you guys have been out to Lake Merced to, to see some of Gil Hans's, uh yeah. renovation, restoration work going on there. I think um, Lake Merced, it's still early. I mean, they've only got about five or six holes done. So it's, it's always hard. Like, you know, it looks, it's really cool. And, you know, I, I posted a... Uh, a then and now photo. It's it's pretty remarkable. Um, getting back the the lost McKenzie, some of the lost McKenzie holes out there. Obviously, they aren't getting all of them back because of the highway easement. Um, but that's, I think that you know, just in general with Lake Merced, what I, I I'm amazed by just the you know that's going to be a massive transformation. And I I think from from the club standpoint, you know, going. And get and doing it in doing the whole thing and going all the way back is is really awesome. Um, it's going to be a lot different golf course than it was before, and I think it's going to have much more clear of an identity. 
um, and it's going to be a lot more fun to play. And uh, I think it's also going to fit the landscape a lot more. I mean, it, it is going to be a, a markedly better golf course. I, I you know, and I don't want to make any grand proclamations about it because it's it's, it's not finished yet. Not finished. I mean, they yeah. got they got three three holes that are grass, grassed in right now. But so. it's exciting because that has always been a super high potential golf course. Yes. And a lot of people, including myself, thought this would never happen. That's the thing. That's yeah. a, it's just it's just one of those places where you're like, oh, if, if it, what could have been if that you know. And, and I think that's the uh, that's the really neat thing. And obviously, uh, Gil and his team have done some tremendous jobs around the country. Um, and it's been really cool. It was it's really cool to go back to that corner that they have done and and see. And then you look at the old photos and you're like, wow, you know, like the, this is pretty pretty close to what they had and uh if you know it, it's really undiscernible to the eye on, on photos and this is a way for it to stand out yeah i think it starts to stand out now well it's a great club and a great membership too like yeah. it, it's been one of the uh one of the most diverse clubs in san francisco for since its beginning lake merced has uh, has always had that vibe and that role in san francisco mm-hmm. you have some exclusive clubs in in the city and you know that th- those are great clubs too but lake merced is the club where people who live in the city have often felt like i can i can go there i can get around there i feel comfortable there it has played that role and i think that's really cool and needed because there are definitely some clubs in san francisco where you know folks who live in the city their whole lives don't play there even if they're avid golfers. But Lake Merced has been a, a bit more accessible and open. What did you think of Green Hills? Green Hills Country Club. All right. Alistair McKenzie course. I'm not exactly sure of the year. Probably late I think. 1930. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was terrific. I was really impressed by the piece of land. The routing is mostly intact there. They have a lot of the original greens uh, and a lot of the original contour. And so um, I thought there was a lot of cool stuff there now. And what's even more tantalizing is its potential. You know, if, if they did a proper restoration of Alistair McKenzie's work there, it would be one of those clubs that would compete for national members and uh, for the affection of golf nerds, even in a city that has, you know, Cal Club and SFGC, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a sporty golf course with a super dramatic piece of land. It's not an easy walk for sure, um, but we walked it. So it is by definition walkable. I think it's and, super. I mean, it's super walkable because it's a small piece of yes, land. It is. It's, it's a severe, tight piece of but land. It's small. And I think if you walked it a few times, you'd be in the in Green Hills, like walking shape. Like I've been walking a lot of golf courses in San Francisco and there's a lot of hills and stuff. And that one had some intense hills, um, small property. And, uh, well, it's kind of a lesson in how to take a small property that is severe too, where there's a lot of places where you might not be able to put golf holes and make a routing really work and not feel repetitive. I think that's the brilliant thing about the golf course. In addition to it, having some really cool greens and individual, Holes. yeah there's some so. stretches out there that are really 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 good yeah what are the what are the top couple of things that you think they could uh, uh it's the easy stuff it's uh mowing trees, lines. trees mowing lines 
Um, green sizes could get bigger. Recapturing green, a few bunkers, maybe. Greens could get slower on the stint meter because mm-hmm. um, I think they, they run into a situation that, you know, listen, like a lot of McKenzie courses, Pasatiempo has this problem. Crystal Downs has this problem where they just, you know, modern green speeds don't give them a lot of pins. And, you know, I think that that's the thing is like, you know, do you want Alistair McKenzie greens or do you want fast greens? I would pick Alistair McKenzie greens every day of the week. Um, I don't think it's really a question and I don't understand how that question actually goes the other way sometimes with softening of of greens. Um, But, you know, that's the society we live in where uh, the, the membership's ego about you know, speed of greens is more important than, you know, retaining contours. And this is not directed at Green Hills because they haven't softened, uh, you know, many of their greens. I think they've only done softened one of them, mm-hmm. uh, which is still very, very cool. This is more directed at, at it's a, a widespread trend. Yeah. A yeah. lot of clubs across the country. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think that I think that scenario goes the other way sometimes because maybe members don't haven't particularly looked into Alistair McKenzie and, and or, don't put or much Donald stock in or yeah. A.W. Tillinghast and or... It, and this is know, understandable. Like this. There are a lot of people who are, aren't nerds about golf ar- course architecture. And so when they hear, okay, Alistair McKenzie did these greens, it doesn't impress them like it might you and me. And that's just their different perspective. And so, of course, that is overwhelmed by the common sense notion, what has become a common sense notion, that fast greens are better. And so... Often people will say, well, what can we do to make these greens fast? Well, we have to soften some of the contours. Okay, if that's what's necessary, go ahead. And you and and there's not a sense of the pain of losing Alistair McKenzie greens. Because if, if you don't know really what a McKenzie green is, then why, why would you care about it? So Green Hills has a decision to make sometime in, in the next few years, I suppose, about whether we're going to have fast greens or whether we're going to have McKenzie greens. It seems like things are leaning toward the McKenzie end of the equation, which is really encouraging because I think Green Hills will uh, really surprise people by how cool it, it well, can it's be. Got, and, it's and maybe it's one be. of those places that has like a very um, huge potential on the fun factor. Yeah. Because you're there are a lot of dramatic shots and a lot of really great greens. It's a sporty golf course. Yeah. That's uh, that's what the adjective is perfectly used at Green Hills. Not a long golf course, but super fun and has has some very, very dramatic holes. So, all right. A question from RLM. Um, this is my dad, by the way, uh, RLM on Twitter. Uh, and he asks a number of questions and I'll, I'll address a, a couple of them. He says, what are you currently reading? Three favorite golf books and why? Foundation books for GCA, basic literacy, must reads for all golfers. I don't think we can do all of those, but I, I chose three favorites. I chose a couple of basic GCA things. And Andy can add in what he wants to add I'm in reading, here. I'm reading the Kurt Sampson Masters book. Nice. Right. I haven't really read. I, I I would say that I've been so busy that I haven't really been reading. Reading stuff on the internet. Uh, I do read a, a lot, lot on the yeah. internet. Yeah. Um, that's kind is, of where where we, that's sort of the water we swim in working in uh, at the fried egg, right? We're not yeah. we're we're reading a lot of things on the internet, but books are you know. Uh, I, I mean, I re- read plenty of books, but it's not it's not a, a central part of what we're doing day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm also rereading the links. I've got like two books by Robert I'm Hunter. Right now. I re- so I'm rereading that. It's been that's been fun. That book 
in terms of a GCA book, uh, a good beginner GCA book, you know, you obviously have Shackelford and, and Doak's books, uh, Grounds for Golf, and then Anatomy of a Golf Course are two wonderful beginner books. But if you're looking for those go into really detail, like if you're looking for like a really great beginner book that's not really nitty gritty, I think The Links by Robert Hunter is a really good pick because you know, in the golf architecture writing, he also wraps like good stories in there. And he's a good writer. It, he, he, he did write kinds of writing other than golf. Fascinating figure, Robert Hunter. He's a big socialist. Well, I mean, and, yeah, yeah, Robert Hunter is such cool a life. great character. Yeah. I mean, you think about like he 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 was he did some architecture here in 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 Northern California. Worked for Mackenzie. Was one. Yeah. Of, yeah. But he did architecture before Mackenzie, mm-hmm. and then. He must have met Mackenzie w- when he went over to the UK, which is where he, why he wrote the links after he went there. Mm-hmm. And then he came back, and then he's the reason Mackenzie got to Northern California, yeah. um, which is you know pretty good for golf golfers because you know he designed some good stuff here. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, Robert Hunter is super interesting, and the book is really good. He wrote yeah, and like you said, he wrote some like really good other book he wrote some good books on politics you know uh, in yeah. his time like you know heralded public political books also yeah. is uh, i mean when you look back at uh, some of these writers uh artists uh, creative figures from the early 20th century people just seem to have had more time on their hands and they they didn't really but there they were did. fewer they, fewer distractions and they, did they spent more, more time. time reading and writing which was definitely to their benefit so they didn't have televisions yeah that's they didn't have computers and phones and and so robert hunter did a, a, a formidable amount of work all right um so three favorites of mine favorite golf books bernard darwin the golf courses of the british isles maybe my favorite golf book of all time Go get that one. Uh, it, or you can read it for free on the internet because it's outside of copyright. Kevin Robbins, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, I think is a great modern book about the PGA Tour. It's not only about Payne Stewart's last days and kind of last stretch of golf leading up to his very tragic death in, in 1999, but it's also about everything that was changing about golf. Yeah, it was and, a really transitional period. And Kevin Robbins is a great writer, also has a terrific book about uh, Harvey Penick. Um, so, so check that out. And another book that I'd choose is, uh, why golf called why golf by Bob Cullen, uh, who writes, d- does a is lot it, of the writing it for why? Uh, the why it's why. Okay. Yeah. Why golf question mark, um, Bob Cullen. These are sort of off the wall picks. I, I wanted to mention Kevin Robbins and, and Bob Cullen because they don't get chosen much in these lists and no, no chicken soup really for the good. golfer's soul. No, no. We're not going to do chicken soup for the golfer's soul. Okay, I just wanted to... Is that a real book? I think so, yeah. Oh, God. I think my mom got it for me when I was a kid. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great family golf gift. Uh, well-intentioned, but misses the mark. Um, all right, so those are some favorites. Basic GCA books, I agree about the links. I think that would be a good place for a lot of people to start. If you're trying to get a kid into golf course architecture... Somebody like a kid who's 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. You're going to try and get a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old. I, this is when I was into it. It's when I got into it. All right. My, I, dad, my dad brought me this book I'm about to mention when I was, when I was 10. 
Okay. Um, is that is that what? too early no, for a lot no. of kids? I I just I just I think <laughs> these are these are goals. Is that yeah. annoyingly precocious? No, no. Right. How about I, a high school kid? Any kid who is like starting to get interested in golf courses, if they're catching the bug for golf courses, bring them the World Atlas of Golf. I would say get an That's old edition book. of this book. The new editions are fine. The old editions are are quite a bit better. I think have better writing in them as well as this, just these sort of imagination capturing maps of golf courses, the, the great golf courses of the world. I think that book is a home run for young people who are starting to get into golf course architecture and a great place to start. Andy already mentioned Shackelford's and Doak's books, which are the best modern introductions to golf course architecture for sure. And uh, if you're looking at an Alistair McKenzie book, I don't think you go Spirit of St. Andrews. I think you get the book Uh, called Golf Golf Architecture. Architecture. It's shorter and it has basically all of the bits that people quote from the Spirit of St. Andrews with a few uh, exceptions. But a lot of Spirit of St. Andrews is word for word reprinting of Golf Architecture, the book that he published during his lifetime in 1920. Um, and so I think that go for reach for that one first before you go for spirit of St. Andrews. All right. So that's answering my dad's question. Thank you, dad. Um, all right. Another question. Uh, we'll, we'll do a couple more here. A question from Adam MG 27 on Instagram. I think these are related questions. How many projects is too many projects for an architect? Are big names starting to get there? And with so much work, who are young architects that you hope and think will get a big break? I think these questions are related in the sense that there are a few architects who are getting a lot of work. And then there are some really talented young golf architects who haven't yet gotten that next big project. Um, so what are your thoughts on both or one of those questions? Yeah, um, Obviously, there's so many projects that are happening, which is why architects are busier than they've ever been that in, in a long time since basically the um, recession in 2008. You know, this is effectively the busiest the market's ever been because more golf courses are getting built. And one of the things that happened in 2008 was there's a huge contraction in the golf architecture industry. You know, there's less people now that work in it. And now with the the increased demand for golf courses, there's probably going to be, there's almost like an architect shortage. I, I don't want to say that there's a lot of members of the ASGCA, but there's a lot of, there's, it might be an architect shortage of, of people that, you know, somebody wants to hire to build their golf course. I don't know. I mean, there are, there are a, a lot, lot of, of great, striving young shapers. Yeah, there, there's right? a lot of, but they, these are all architects who haven't gotten a shot. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that's the hard thing. Everybody always wants to say like, oh, take a chance. Go, to, go take yeah, a chance. Yeah, do a David McClay kid yeah, again. Yeah, but at the same time, if you're if you're building a golf course and it's your first golf course, like it's, hard, it's hard a hard to, thing to yeah. do, especially if you can get, you know, Tom or or uh, Gil or Bill Core uh, to, to design your golf course. Like, you know, that's a, everybody always wants to, always talks about how the Kaisers need to hire, you know, a young guy again and, and that. But it's like, well, like, you know, it's a pretty good recipe to hire. Like, you know, the, one of the things you do, like when you're when you think about it, like a lot of walks of life is like you take a big chance so that later in life you can be more conservative, you know, when it comes to like your career. Right. People, people, everybody can relate to this. Right. You take an take a big chance. So you that makes your career 
right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can follow like the the general arc or you can jump and do something in in kind of accelerate your career. In a weird but, way, when you're at the very beginning of a massive project like the Bandon Dunes Resort, you're more able to take a big chance yeah. on the first course than you would be on the fifth course. Well, exactly. Because like now, like if it if it, if it blows up in your face, everybody knows. Yep. Um, There's so, a lot to lose. There's more to lose. Yeah. If you mess up on the first one, what? I mean, oh, oh well, like that didn't work out. But yeah, I mean, they're pretty deep into it. They're not going to be. And we're yeah. seeing architects get shots. We're seeing yeah. Andrew Green's getting is is really busy and mm-hmm. with renovations and restorations. Mike you Cocking have, is starting is, to get yeah. some chances. Oh, Mike, Mike Cocking okay. and Jeff Ogilvie and Ashley Mead. Ashley Mead. Yeah. Um, OCM. They, they have uh, obviously the Medina renovation, which is a huge project. They have a new build in Minneapolis or Minnesota. And they have another one in the U.S. that hasn't been announced yet. Um, I'm not going to announce it because it's not, not my not news. Your place. It's not well, my news to announce. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they're you know you you look at Kyle Franz and Keith Reb and Riley Johns. They just got a big break to go do renovations at Cabot Citrus, the the new uh, Cabot Resort in Florida. So like people are getting breaks, and a lot of the architects are really busy. Like one of the things is like Bill and Ben don't do really renovation restoration anymore. Tom doesn't do renovation restoration. Brian Schneider is building old Barnwell. Kyle Kai Golby is building tree farm. Like th- this is like not a like when are young guys going to get a chance? They're getting chances. Yeah, and the way this that is not like- the question anymore. And and what's too many projects? Like the to answer the the I think like. It depends on what how your firm's set up, right? Totally depends on how it's structured. Because people look at Renaissance Golf Design. Does Renaissance, Renaissance Golf Design have too many projects? Well, you have to look at who's actually carrying out most of those projects. Because the way that Tom Doak structures things often is that there will be projects that he is taking the lead on. But there are also Renaissance Golf Design projects that are headed up by other people in his organization. Yeah. Eric and, Iverson, Brian Slonick, Brian Schneider... Um, and God, I'm blanking, you know, so like those, those guys are all capable of building their own golf courses. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is that these guys are getting opportunities. You know, Gil obviously is very, very busy, mm-hmm. right? But he's got Jim Wagner and nobody ever talks about Jim Wagner. Yeah, and, and yeah. And Jim and Wagner then, is, is running a lot of it and heading yeah. up an organization of very talented Shaper. construction people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so that that's also part of that organization and why they're able to take on so much work. Now, something that people don't know, and I, I'm not saying that, uh, I, you know, Gil Hans is really busy and we will see what the quality of work is. The, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, and I expect the work to be high quality because it has been so far. But he's really busy right now. So we will see in a few years how these courses turn out. But... One thing that people don't know about Gil Hans is that he turns down a lot of work, yeah. right? I think people underrate how much work Corin Crenshaw, Tom Doak, and Gil Hans turn down, and then they recommend other architects to to take it up, and that's when those architects they, do they, get their breaks. And a lot of times, they recommend younger architects, and younger architects get jobs. You yeah. know, and and I think that's the thing is that these architects are going to get time, but if there's only eight courses being built in a year or six. Like there have been in recent years, 
those people building those courses would be crazy not to hire Corin Crenshaw, Gil Hans, Tom Doak. Like that, it's, it's just if you can hire those guys, why wouldn't you, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a super safe bet uh, at this point. All right, so I wanted to do a last couple, uh, last couple of questions here about Augusta National because we are officially in the run up to the 2022 Masters. Drew C. Gus on Instagram asks, you become architect at Augusta. What are the first three changes you make? I think they're kind of already being made. Like um, would have I said would, 11th hole. Restore creeks. Oh, yeah. Especially uh, near 11. the 11th green. Yeah, yeah. 11. I, and I think you could just get them looking a little bit more. You look at the old pictures, right? Um, so that would be number one. I, I mean, maybe not number one. That'd be one of the things I would do. I'd, uh, I'd get the bunker style back to McKenzie. Um, I would get rid of the, I mean, the saucer flashed up bunkers, like the, the, they look like, like vanilla ice cream scoops. (laughs) And they've been really influential. A lot of courses strive for, for this look. And they're just such a departure from what it was. Like, that's what kind of gets me. It's like, you, you like to say you're a McKenzie course, but these bunkers bear no resemblance to the bunkers you put here. Yeah. And I, I don't think, you know, so I would do that. Um, and then I would just continue on, which I think this year we're going to see. I wrote an article last week about this, but on the website, but we're going to see a lot more short grass, mm-hmm. um, which is really encouraging. You're, you know, right on to um you're gonna see a lot of sh- more short grass on nine and ten and short grass not only around the greens but in the but fairways, in the fairways yeah, you know where they're rough recently there's been rough that has stopped balls from rolling out to a worse position when they've been hit down a hill where players are being asked to kind of keep the ball up on the hill and the yeah. rough has served as a bumper, bumper yeah a, a bumper like in bumper bowling yeah yeah and and i think the 11th obviously that's going to be a great change i think i think that that whole they've widened out the fairway better. took out a yeah. lot of trees on the right side yeah no more kitty litter alley yeah so you're gonna have like actually like a preferred angle and a in a less preferred angle as opposed to you know one place to hit it yeah. so that that's going to be good and they did some work around the greens they lowered down that chipping area on the right that makes that chip from the right a little bit more dicey than in years past. Um, so that I really like that change. Like if I was going to do a whole next, I'd zero in on the seventh, which went from like a drive and pitch, really cool short par four to now a brutal, brutally long par four. That's like a bowling alley. Narrow. Very yeah. Narrow. Just with artificial tree, like just tree planting to narrow and, and, you know, effectively like, you know, manipulate an outcome. Yeah. So, and I, and I think that one's a, a big glaring next, but if, you know, bunkers and, uh, and creeks, like if you did the bunkers and the creeks, like you the visual aesthetic would just be off the charts out there. Bunkers and creeks. And, and then I think you'd have to do more in order to tie it all in. And that's the problem is that you can't just, take those bunkers back to the McKenzie style and not do anything else because suddenly the bunkers would, yeah, the bunkers would look out of place because the whole deal there right now is this perfection, this absolutely kind of burnished, shiny, you know, veneer on the course that's on everything, including the bunkers. 
So if you take the bunkers back to a more rugged style, then you start having to look at not only creek creeks, the way the creeks are, but the way the whole course is presented. Yeah, and, and flower planting. And that's the issue. Yeah. I mean, these these incredibly well curated flower beds, um, the whole way that the course is presented from the bunkers to every single other thing is of a piece right now. It's at least coherent. Now, it's not definitely not my favorite aesthetic. It's not in keeping with what was intended there by Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie, um, though it's questionable. Uh, you know, Bobby Jones lived a while longer and, and certainly seemed to be involved in a lot of the changes that happened. In any case, it would be great to see it go back to that style. I think it'd be great to see the Cliff Roberts eighth green come back. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot of people who don't know what you're talking about but yeah cliff cliff roberts at one point destroyed the eighth green complex and put in a flat saucer green that's like hilariously bad (laughs) um yeah so definitely bring that back as well last question from ryan esmond is augusta an extremely overrated course would it be highly ranked if it was public, I think it, yeah, it hosts a, a championship every year. It's going to be highly ranked, no matter if it's public or private. I think that that is um, possibly the best golf course in the in the world. Is but it's not that today. I've walked it. I've watched a lot of golf be played on TV. I've walked it only twice. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to be there all week this year. So that's that's exciting. I'll get a bit much more familiar with it, um, you know, from like an on the ground standpoint. But it's I mean, like what are these rankings are so fucking silly, you know, like, oh, it's the eighth best course. Well, this is the, what's the ninth best course? Like, <laughs> oh, it's the, the, you know what? Today. I'm going to write down my 10 favorite courses. Then tomorrow they might be a little bit different. You know, the ranking courses is just absolutely asinine. And then you start to like look into these numbers. Like you look into A, who's rating the courses is you got a bunch of like, you know, you got a bunch of guys that just like golf. Like, you know, there's not, you know, I'm not saying I, this is all just a mixture. It's a melting pot of taste, right? It's not, it's not as authoritative as it, presents itself no no know? it's like it's just an absurd thing like you know I've, I've been become over the years pretty intimate with all the all the ranking systems and you know having conversations with people at those organizations but like you know here's the thing is like you know the the whole thing of ranking courses is trivial is augusta overrated like um you know i would put it in the top class of golf courses they're in the top bucket, you know, in the state it is today, you know, it would be a lot better. It'd be nearer the top of the top bucket if it was, you know, if it was presented a little bit more away from, you know, here, here's the other thing. Like, what's the purpose of Augusta National, right? Is the purpose of it to be the best golf course it can be for members? Is the purpose of it to be the best tournament golf course it can be? for for tournaments like that's the other thing like how are we judging it right like and i think you know the way we view the lens of augusta national for 99.9 percent of the 
of golfing public is like this is where they play the Masters, my favorite golf tournament every year. Yeah. And and for that matter, I think it does its purpose pretty well. Now, for the point zero zero one percent of the population that cares and might be able to go play it in their lifetime, you know, it's probably not doing the best service as a golf course for the golfing public. Yeah. Yeah. What What is its purpose? I mean, certainly to, to host the Masters. That That is what they're really focused on. And and maybe that that purpose is widening a little bit under Fred Ridley's leadership. He seems to be more interested in, in doing things like the Augusta National Women's Amateur and kind of re- reaching out in, in ways that the club hasn't necessarily done in the past or at least hasn't publicized much in the past. And so it's hard to say exactly what its purpose should be, but focusing on the masters is a big deal there and it does a great job of hosting the masters. I think it should also have a good influence on, it should recognize its influence on golf courses. I think that it could do a better, it could do a better job in that respect. Yeah. And here's the thing. What, I, this this overrated question drives me insane. What what is overrated? You used to have a segment on this podcast called Overrated well, Underrated. I know, but like with Augusta, <laughs> like what's over? Like okay, well, I don't know what it is. It's like about eight, maybe. It, it eight is in golf. Fallen a golf. little bit com. on the golf dot com rankings you know, under Rand Morrison. And, and, so yeah. if it if it was eighteen. Is, does that mean it's overrated at eight? Yeah. Like you've often talked about buckets. Yeah. Augusta top bucket. Yeah. I think it's in the bottom part of the top bucket in the current state. Okay. Um, so yeah, in that sense, I, I like, don't, I don't if, think if it's I'm overrated. saying top bucket, you're talking about like eight to 15 golf courses in, in the top bucket in the U S yeah. Yeah. But again, you come back to the question of, purpose and what it's being rated for because if, if you're saying what's the course that be- does the best job of fulfilling the purpose of being a public golf course that's really great to play for a wide variety of people and uh, serves its community in uh, in a really direct way then you're talking about a completely different set of courses that don't make the rankings mm-hmm. and and I think that that's where the rankings fall so short is that there is an ins- assumed invisible purpose that all these courses are striving towards, but we're not quite sure what it is. What are these courses the best at? Because they're certainly not, you know, the courses that do well in these rankings certainly aren't the best at everything that a golf course can do. There are other golf courses that do certain things a lot better. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's always been my issue with the rankings, too. It's that, well, I it's mean, just, the Golf Digest just rankings group are things. a joke. <laughs> when we talk about rankings profit, on the podcast, it's a people profit engine is what it yeah. is. It is it's, like a, that, it's a lucrative is, thing for them. Yeah, magazine. they make they they generate millions of dollars every year on their rankings. Uh, Golf Week makes money through their trips now. Like I, you know, and you know, there was Golf dot com's gotten cleaned up a lot under Rand Morissette, but there was a time when Golf dot com was uh, selling spots in its rankings. So, like these rankings that drive decisions by clubs across the world are the silliest silliest things to drive decisions off of on that note thank you andy it's been a delight
This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. One quick note, this coming Monday, March 21st, is registration day for our event at Prairie Dunes Country Club. The event is called The Scraper, and you can get more information about it on thefriedegg.com and on our event page at Golf Genius. Event signups will be on Golf Genius as well, and they will open up at noon Eastern time on Monday, March 21st. Hope to see you out there at Prairie Dunes, and thanks for listening. (music) 